You make a mistake if you see what we do as merely political. Hitler. Hello and welcome to Brett Easton Hell Yes. This is the podcast where every week we take a deep dive into a different work of controversial Gen X author Brett Easton Ellis. I'm your host, Katie Wright, and joining me this week, our first return guest, my dear brother, Sean Wright Esquire. Sean, hello. Hi, Katie. Hi. Is it appropriate to say Esquire? That just means lawyer, yeah. right? Yeah, basically. Cool. <laughs> so uh, you were a, our guest, my guest, for the first episode of this podcast about Less Than Zero. And uh, going into that episode, I asked you what your background with Brett Easton Ellis was like. And you said that you had you had very little knowledge of him, really. You had only seen Less Than Zero, the movie, and American Psycho, the movie. Um now, a couple of weeks have gone by, and I'm curious, has your relationship to Brett Easton Ellis changed in that time? Well, I am much more familiar with him uh, in that I've also read uh, Now Glamorama, and I've be uh, begun to read um, Rules of Attraction, and I've listened to numerous episodes of his uh, podcast, and I've read... Uh, a number of interviews and things like that with him. So I feel like I'm far more familiar with the man than I was before. <laughs> yeah, you really, you've really taken a crash, a crash course. In yeah, him. I have. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I'm curious, is this, um, has this been more because, um, because you knew you were going to be in another episode of this podcast and you're like doing your homework or are you like, just like a Brady Stanellis fan now and you're like hyped to jump into it? Well, I find his writing very compelling and interesting, and I just have a tendency once I start on something like this to kind of go down the rabbit hole with it a little bit. So, so I'm sure <laughs> that uh, it won't be long before I've read all his books and and I'm fully up to it date. It doesn't on take it. long. <laughs> nope, <laughs> it does not take long. There's not very many. <laughs> um, all right, so. Glamorama. I say Glamorama. I recently heard Brett on his podcast pronounce it Glamorama, but I've been saying Glamorama for years and I cannot stop now. So <laughs> it's Glamorama for me. Um, so, Sean, uh, I guess at first I'm just curious, first impressions. Well, I thought it was a good book. It reminds me a little bit of uh, some of Thomas Pynchon's novels, particularly Gravity's Rainbow and V. Uh, it put me in mind of so Glamorama uh, kind of is split into two main acts, in my opinion. There's like mundane celebrity, uh, you know, day in the life. And then there's suddenly like, now we're a, a weird, like fucked up surreal spy thriller. Well, I felt like the book took a real turn. I, di I didn't feel like it really took the turn until like uh, Bobby Hughes. Yeah, him and to go pick up Sam Ho or whatever his name was, and yeah. then and then like the next day when he find when he walks into that room and sees what's going on, I felt that's where it right. took the turn from like there it was yeah. like this, but there was a big a weird transitional period where things are getting a little darker and weirder. Yeah. But I felt like that was yeah. like okay, 
you know, this is like a whole, we're in a whole new ball game now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's like, if it's a movie, that's like act three, right? <laughs> like that's the like raise of the stakes moment. Yeah. Um, but let's, let's kind of start more towards the beginning and kind of right. move forward. So we start out Victor Ward, who, as you now know, because you're reading rules of attraction and as my listeners know, because they've already listened to the rules of attraction episode, uh, has, it has one chapter in Rules of Attraction, which he narrates. Maybe more than one. Is it a couple? You're I'm, not done with the book I've yet. You don't know. Reading and I've, I've read one <laughs> Ward chapter. I don't know if he's got any more. So Victor uh, Ward, nay Johnson, um, when we start the book, he's opening a club and he's doing it secretly because he's also opening a club for another guy. Right. Um, it's like, it's just like, it feels like a kind of reality show type drama. And there's a mention, there's a mention of the real world. Like Victor got rejected from, from the real world. Right. Um, and it has like a very kind of, yeah, sort of that feeling of like uh, reality TV, especially because as we open the book, Victor is being, um, like followed by a film crew and a reporter because they're planning on doing, I can't remember it's for like MTV or something. They're doing right. a little like thing. on. No, it's a, it's a magazine. I think it's details magazine. They're doing a little a thing on him. I think it was details. Um, but yeah, so it's, it kind of creates this feeling of like, it feels like a parody of reality TV, but then when you think about it, it's like, oh, reality TV wasn't really a thing yet. Like there just was the real world, but it was before the big boom of reality TV. Right. Um, but it feels like today, like Victor Ward would be, um, uh, who's that, who's that guy who, uh, who, who dated a Kardashian? <laughs> I don't know his name. Oh. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think I know who you're talking Hold about. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Let me shout it. Let me shout at my roommate. Hey, Lenny. Yeah. Who is that guy that played Patrick Bateman in that Kanye promo? What? Thank you. Yes. So Scott Disick. That's exactly who I was thinking of. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So Scott Disick is a man who like dated a Kardashian and uh, right. kind of his only skill set is being like adjacent to fame. Right. Looks, like, looks <laughs> um, kind of like a wimpy Christian, <laughs> Christian Bale. Yeah, he does. And he was very well cast as Patrick Bateman, even though he's a terrible actor. <laughs> but um, it kind of feels like a, a contemporary Victor Ward would be like Scott Disick. Like he would just be kind of like a useless, a useless piece of shit, handsome man with no job who professionally like dates a reality TV star. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I feel like the this book is kind of prescient in like creating that kind of character before like <laughs> the situation for that kind of person to exist really existed. So Victor uh, is our narrator. And I feel like Victor is a distinctly different narrator from the majority of Brett Easton Ellis narrators. Would you agree? Oh, based on what you've read so far? Well, I don't feel like I have quite the grounding yet, but he is much, he's very uh, uh, dumb and, and shallow. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's his affect at the very mm -hmm. least um, for much of the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I would, I kind of would say like he's, he's dumb and shallow the whole way through, <laughs> right? Like he never really stops being dumb or stops being shallow. He, he just, I, uh, I feel <laughs> gets like into a more upsetting situation. 
I feel like you get glimpses of some hidden depths here and there. Hmm, like when? Like as he st- as he begins to like try to get a little bit of control back after he falls under the sway of of uh, Bobby Hughes, um, and he's like in there arguing with Palacon and them. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a certain assertiveness and like intelligence to to the way he's speaking that's like was noticeably lacking all along before then <laughs> but like it feels okay. like something that like it, it feels like something that had like well you get a sense that he's somebody who made a choice at some point to utterly shut his brain off like that he wasn't mm-hmm. necessarily born a dope he just like yeah somewhere along the line turned it off like and, and like interesting. constant use of drugs and alcohol or whatever you know as like numbed him out that's really interesting that that mirrors something that my guest andrew said in the rules of attraction episode um he like based on just the couple of chapters of victor I was saying like, you know, Victor has like no inner monologue, basically, like he kind of just reports what happens to him and what he sees, but there's no commentary the way there is with other characters. And Andrew was like, I I feel like, and I was like, so I feel like he's just kind of like adrift and helpless. And Andrew was like, I feel like he just made a choice not to like, not to think about things and to just like let what happens happen. Um, so that's interesting. Yeah. You're kind of saying the same thing that, that Andrew did. Uh, yeah. Like, I feel like he's maybe, like, somebody who's, like, quite intelligent and is, like, mm. like, you just see hints of it. Like, he's got, a, like, some of his, like, little silly offhand remarks, there's, a, like, a little biting wit underneath it, you know? I really, I I was so, I just was not prepared for you to say that Victor is intelligent. That is the most shocking that's the most shocking statement I could possibly hear. <laughs> well, I like, his little, um, I like his little, like, the better you look, the more you see thing that he likes to say. But I feel, I feel like the whole thing about the better you look, the more you see is that he's saying that while looking great and seeing absolutely nothing. Right. <laughs> like, that's him being completely wrong. Right. But he's also, but, you know, like, there's the double entendre there. Yeah, it's like the harder you, you know, like the more right. careful you look at things, the more you see, and then right. like, and like the better looking you are, the more access it gives you to seeing things, and it does seem like his good looks are sort of like part, at least in part, what brings him into this crazy circle of like model terrorists, you know that. Yeah, and he's and he's like. You know, in like he's like getting past all the velvet ropes mm-hmm. with no issues at all. You know, like yeah, I mean, like he's he's getting to see behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. You know, that's interesting. Um, so your take on Victor is a lot different from mine, but I don't know. You might maybe maybe you will have convinced me by the time this is over because <laughs> I think you have an interesting point. Um, but to me, it feels uh, to me going in at least my my thought was like for the most part brett writes narrators who inhabit these like shallow materialistic worlds and act shallow and materialistic and then like the 
the majority of the tension in the story is kind of like their inner suffering and like their their inner monologue kind of being in contrast to the like shallow frivolous world that they live in and i feel like i feel like victor is the one brett easton ellis narrator who genuinely is the guy that most Brett Easton Ellis characters pretend to be. Um, and I feel like I've heard in in some of Brett's interviews that like one of the kind of seeds of Glamorama was wanting to wanting to write a, a narrator who kind of like doesn't understand anything or <laughs> like, like there's like a wide gap between the the reader's understanding and the narrator's understanding. Mm -hmm. Um so yeah, I don't know. I think Victor's dumb as shit. <laughs> and I feel like that's got a big part of the premise of the book is that he's dumb as shit. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he is, and like, you know, like everybody's always telling him how dumb he is too, you know? And he's all like, yeah, whatever. Like Chloe. Yeah. Bobby. Every, Bobby's all uh -huh. like, oh, you're perfect because you got like no preconceived notions about anything. You know? right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There are multiple moments in the story where Victor, you know, misses something and the person he's talking to, he'll describe them like staring at him with disbelief. And then he'll be like, and then it looks like they realize something and then they keep talking. And, and like, he doesn't yeah. really process what that is, but it's this person being like, is this guy seriously this fucking stupid? Right. Yeah, this guy is seriously this fucking stupid. Oh my god! It's like right. he just doesn't—he doesn't even have the self-awareness to realize that he said something stupid when the person is staring at him like he's. Although stupid. I feel like you know, I, I mean, maybe it's just like because it's a first-person narrative and everything. Like I feel like the way he like narrates it in such a way as to carefully convey how stupid what he says was. You know, like in a way that you'd have to kind of be aware of how stupid you were. It, it, and it, 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 you'd have to be aware of how stupid what you said was in order to like convey it as act, that accurately. Where it's like he makes a I like, I think, I feel like he, it, it's a choice he makes to like respond with the dumbest possible thing. You know, like he, like Gracie, basically he's doing like a Gracie Allen routine, like on the old, <laughs> <laughs> you know. I love George that Burns take. Shows, like, like, yeah. Uh, good night, Grace. Say good night, Gracie. Good night, Gracie. Like that, you know. Like. <laughs> that's fair. Yeah, that's fair. And that does kind of track with the way that Brett talks about his narrators. Like that. That basically every every male narrator he writes is just kind of like dealing with the problems that he's dealing with at that time in his life. <laughs> um, uh, and Brett wrote this at the height of his celebrity because this is his follow-up to American Psycho. So this is when he's at the peak of his, you know, living next door to Tom Cruise, going to parties with right. Andy Warhol fame. Um, so if there was going to be, and he was super coked out in this era. Yeah. So he probably was acting stupider than he has the potential <laughs> to act. Um, yeah, so I guess fair enough. Maybe Victor being dumb is a conscious choice and not just him missing a part of his brain. <laughs> 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 but I guess I sort of, I always kind of like noticed the, um, noticed that the descriptions of Victor being stupid kind of required a level of awareness that a genuinely stupid person wouldn't have. But I... 
I always was just like, that's just kind of a conceit. Like you just kind of have to accept that that will be in there to write this story. And it's so it's maybe not a completely like faithful transcription of like what he would say is happening. But your your take is fair as well. (laughs) So Victor throughout this book has an extremely high number of uh, romantic interests. Yes. Uh, There's like, I think there's five girls plus Bobby. (laughs) Um, uh, And I, for the most part, the girls are kind of interchangeable. Would you say? Did you feel, did you feel like a strong differentiation between the women or did you feel like they kind of all filled the same role? I felt like there was a, a fairly strong differentiation. Not like, I didn't feel like they were all the same role at all. Alison Poole is the most her own woman, I would say, of of the women. Well, maybe so. That's That sounds probably Also, right. do you know this? Do you know the story of Alison Poole? Um, not really. Why? Okay. Um, I meant to get into this on the American Psycho episode, and I didn't because Alison Poole also appears in American Psycho, and I did not get into it. So now, thank God, I get to. Um, but first, let's go to commercial, and then when we come back, we're going to talk about Alison Poole and the rest of Glamour Rama. Back in history class, did you ever take a step back from that textbook you were reading and just think to yourself, man, these people are very dumb. Hi, my name is Eric McAdams and I have a podcast for you. It's called Big Time Whoopsies, and every other Wednesday on the Major Cast Network, I tell a guest, and you the listener, a story from history involving massive incompetence. Big Time Whoopsies, people are dumb, and history can prove it. All right, and we're back. So, Alison Poole is an interesting figure in the Brett Easton Ellis verse. Um, she appears in American Psycho just briefly. She she uh, kind of pops in and pops out, and Patrick mentions a past um, a a past run in with her where he raped her. Um, but she's like a very minor character. But that's not Alison Poole's first appearance in literature. Alison Poole first appears. She is the narrator of the book Story of My Life by Jay McInerney, who is a good friend of Brett Easton Ellis. Oh, my God. <laughs> and it's a great book. Story of My Life is excellent. Um, and uh, so Alison Poole is really, really, really strongly based, like very clearly based, like explicitly a complete ripoff of a girl that Jay McInerney was dating. Um, I think maybe they had broken up by the time he wrote Story of My Life, but they they dated in the 80s. Um, her name in the 80s, her name was Lisa Druck. Uh, and uh, she was kind of like a, kind of ran in the same circles as Brett and Jay, the sort of like you know, rich, rich kid, eighties, like party, party kid circles. Um, and she dated, she dated Jay, uh, and he wrote story of my life about her. Uh, and then they, uh, by the, when, um, Brett was writing American psycho, 
Uh, and I, I can't remember, I can't remember what he was mad at Jay about, but he was mad at Jay for something. So he was like, well, if Jay's going to do that, then I'm going to have my character rape his character. And he wrote Alison Poole into American Psycho and had Patrick Bateman rape her specifically because he was mad at Jay. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, real shitty move. Um, and uh, and then he he comes back for more with Glamorama. He works he works Allison Poole into the into the story, and she's a much more essential um, part of the story. She's I guess she's not totally essential, but she's much more integrated into the story. She has a lot more page time, um, and and I feel like she stands out from the other women that that Victor is sleeping with because she's like the most obnoxious <laughs> like, like yeah. her her kind of thing is just like being shitty <laughs> and and rude i don't know do you f you feel like that's kind of the thing that sets her apart is like she's the hardest pill to swallow of the girls <laughs> at victor's fucking well yeah she's like very much in control of her and victor's relationship uh, mm -hmm. she's like she's like get over here before i ruin your life <laughs> right <laughs> you know, like, so Lisa Druck grows up and she changes her name to Riel Hunter. And then she oh. has an affair with um, John Edwards. John Edwards. <laughs> yeah. And she gets pregnant and that, that pregnancy derails his campaign. Wow. Um, so that's who, that's who Alison Poole is. Oh my God. I had <laughs> yeah. no idea. Yeah. There's a lot, there's a lot there. Also, um, uh, one of my one of my favorite pride anecdotes um, from a there's an interview where Brett says sorry sorry to be talking about this with with you Sean you're you're my brother and it's a little weird but there's an interview where Brett says that he and Jay almost um, almost double teamed her one time and then a reporter a reporter asked Jay McInerney about that and he was like well what does that even mean what does almost even mean you could say anything almost happened which is such a weird like non-denial denial that uh -huh. I feel confident that Brett was telling the truth <laughs> even though even though Brett's a big liar I buy it this time because Jay's response was very strange yeah. Anyway, those are the that's the Lisa Druck, Riel Hunter, Allison Poole oh, that's uh, great. chronicle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um so that is something to keep in mind that this this woman who who Brett is kind of painting as the most like the most controlling, the most bitchy, the most like shitty is the one that he's like basing on his friend's ex-girlfriend who he probably almost had a threesome with. But it's but in the book, he's very like wealthy, a very wealthy, powerful celebrity. I don't get the sense that Riel Hunter slash Lisa Druck was ever that in her life. Yeah, I definitely don't think, well, uh, but I don't think Alison Poole in the book is really a celebrity in her own right. I think she's fame adjacent because of who she's dating. And I think that that was the, I think that was the case with Lisa Druck that she was, you know, she's dating Jay hmm. McInerney. I don't know. Did you feel like Alison Poole was like a star was like a model or an actress well, or something? I mean, Damien says, Damien says, how do you think I'm financing all this stuff? Allison's paying for it all. Mm. So he's, yeah, he's I guess, like rich, rich. I guess I sort of thought that was like a trust 
trust fund money or something. Maybe. But yeah, I guess it's it's not really clear, right? We don't really get a glimpse of Allison like doing a job. Like we don't see Allison like modeling or starring yeah. in a movie or anything. Well, you know, John like, Edwards is paying her a salary to to like oh, yeah. do a uh, um documentary film about him supposedly oh i didn't know that like but this is why it was a kind of a cover for their uh for their affair that makes, that makes and, sense and then like and then he like had to make all these arrangements to get like a hundred thousand dollars to her from the he from money that was from campaign do donations oh no but, like, i didn't I always, know that but i got the i just had the sense that she was maybe like a little hard up for cash you know yeah, and then you know, having can, to find ways to get cash into her hands, <laughs> right? <laughs> but people can fall on hard times. She might have had a trust fund that it's dried true. up by the time it was two thousand five. You know, it's true. But yeah, I'm I'm not sure exactly what her life circumstances were. But in story, I have no idea. I just had an impression. <laughs> <laughs> in story of my life, she's like a trust fund kid, which I think story of my life I think is like truly like pretty much biographical of her um so i i would say i think she came from money and then maybe you know lost it somewhere along the way but yeah, i don't know yeah yeah she's i'm i'm really interested in her i want to learn yeah. more about her uh, yeah <laughs> i i did not realize there was so much more to her than like <laughs> mother of john edward's love child <laughs> Yeah, there is a lot to her. Um, you should read. You should read "Story of My Life." Um, it's it's really good. And I think I think when I've completed Brett's oeuvre, I might do some bonus episodes about like adjacent books. So I'm I'm probably gonna do a "Story of My Life" episode at some point. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she's really interesting. Um, and and uh, uh, it's so funny that there's like so much under the surface with like Brett's relationship to. The real life Allison Pool, but then I feel like in the book, in both books that she appears in, there's like she doesn't feel consequential, really. <laughs> she does. I I feel like she doesn't feel like a really like rounded or fleshed out character. Although I do feel like she feels more fleshed out than the other female characters in this book. Yeah, which I think you said you don't agree with necessarily, right? Well, I don't know. I I felt like. Uh... I felt like Chloe Burns kind of was in a lot of ways uh, fairly fleshed out. And Jamie Fields, Lauren Hind, not so much. Yeah. And Lauren Hind, I think, gets the least least amount of time on the page, right? So that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. She's like, she was, yeah, strange. Her involvement in the story, it all felt a little strange and difficult to pin down. Um, yeah. It was interesting how... Like the ending, you know how like Victor has go gone to law school and everything, and then and then he's meeting, and then like Lauren is married to Damien, and then Damien's going away to this concert, and then he's what like Victor goes to his hotel room or whatever or apartment, and there's a couple men waiting there to kill him, and he kills them, and then mm -hmm. he goes and meets her at this restaurant. And they're talking about how they're both in the same boat and they got to be careful and look out for themselves. Um, mm -hmm. But then Victor is in Italy and he's feeling very like broken and helpless and uh, tries, keeps trying to call his sister 
and his sister's like, fuck off, you know, you're I'm I'm meeting you for lunch later. Who is this? You right. know. And then she puts mm-hmm. him on the phone with himself. And like yeah. the, and like he the him that's in Washington, DC is like, who is this? And then he doesn't say anything and hangs up. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it's all very weird. Yeah, that that the kind of doubles thing is an right. element of this story that is like sort of confounding <laughs> and i guess uh but i feel like i do i feel like that there's like kind of like that victor that we're seeing in that one that you know how it's divided into like six books that victor who's going to nyu that we see in the penultimate book i feel mm-hmm. like he is like the victor ward who's been groomed to be an acceptable member of the power mm. elite. And yeah. Then, and then the victor who's trapped in Europe is like the one that can't ever be that. Right. You know, like yeah. there's a victor who's, there's a victor who is all like, uh, you know, I'm Victor Johnson again. Like, I think it's interesting the name choice because like Victor, you know, that's like winner champion mm-hmm. or whatever. And then he's Victor Johnson on the one hand, which is like, I don't know, like like the association I have is with like uh, a euphemism for male genitalia. Uh Uh-huh. And like- There's also also the, mm -hmm. I was gonna say, there's also the being identified as someone's son, like Johnson is like, you're saying, I'm the son of John. And Ward is like your ward of the state like, right. with no parents. <laughs> right. Like somebody, you're somebody who needs to be looked after and cared for, <laughs> which is like, he's kind of a ward of like the women in his life. <laughs> like, yeah. For much of the yeah. Thing. You know, they're like, everywhere he goes, there's like somebody like, okay, well, um, you know, Chloe is taking care of me. Mm-hmm. And then like Chloe boots him out and then Palacon's taking care of him. And then he's on the boat and he wants Marina to take care of him. But then he shows up and like Jamie Fields is going to take care of him. But then like Bobby Hughes becomes his daddy. And, and it's all like, <laughs> he's just like constantly like looking for who's going to take care of him. Yeah. But then there's a, uh, but then there's the guy who goes, he's like, I'm Victor Johnson. Who's all like assertive and like tells Allison Poole to, to step off and patches things up with Damien and, goes to law school and like whatever you know has his shit together (laughs) yeah are you so are you saying you think that that victor ward is like literally a different victor ward like are you are you saying that we you think we like jump into the narration of like the double or are you just saying like it's different it's a different victor in terms of like he changes well i think we i do think we kind of jump into the narration of the double in a sense but i don't feel like I don't feel like this book necessarily needs to like make sense (laughs) like on a real world plane. Yeah. You know, it's it's sort of, it's sort of to, to sound like a douche, it's sort of Lynchian in a way. Right. right. Like, yeah, yeah. It's sort of in a, it's sort of living in a metaphorical space. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So, So like I do, I think that like, um, you know, there's all these scenes where Victor Ward is saying all these people are constantly all from the from very near the beginning of the book. They're all like, oh, I saw you at this show or that show. And he's like, I wasn't at that show, you know, and like, 
And like, yeah. And I think this is interesting. This sort of echoes the way that um, in American Psycho, Patrick Bateman is constantly mistaken for like other, other Wall Street guys, which has this sort of interesting, I think, kind of double quality of being like, you know, surreal and disorienting. But also if you hear Brett talk about his life for any amount of time, he'll talk about how people walk up to him and they're like, oh, I loved Story of My Life. Oh, I loved A Million Pieces. Like, oh, right. Jay McInerney, give me your autograph. Like, he's clearly just like, this is a real thing that he experiences is just like yeah. people feeling so confident that they know who he is or where they saw him and being completely wrong, <laughs> um, which I just think is interesting because it it works both ways is like, just a weird, disorienting, surreal thing and, like, a very grounded, like, real-life yeah. Red Easton Ellis experience. But, like, yeah, there's this there's this whole, um, like, Hall of Mirrors um, quality to what's going on where there's, like, it's impossible to uh, get a grip on any objective reality. Yeah. Um, and I feel like there's... Oh, a lot of what the book um, is about is like that, like, you know, like trying to penetrate into like some kind of deeper meaning or like get to the bottom of what the truth is or whatever. And like not being able to find any bottom, you know? Yeah. Mm, that's a good point. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, you saying that like, this book doesn't necessarily need to make sense on a real world plane um, really made me this. That was really kind of the decision I came to on the film crew that starts following Victor around partway yeah. through the book, which we haven't talked about yet. So Victor at, at the beginning of the book is being followed around by a film crew that a film crew that's kind of grounded in reality. Like there is a magazine doing a story on him and then like they cancel the story and they leave and then suddenly without like without any kind of addressing of why this is happening suddenly victor is like and the you know and the crew that's filming me is behind me and the director tells me to do this and then throughout the book this film crew that's following him uh is like they're both filming the action but also interacting with the action like it's real they'll be like that's not in the script like this you weren't supposed to do that that's not in the script this is in the script um they'll be like i think you're in trouble we weren't supposed to film that um and if you try to if you if you try to work it into like a real life narrative that you just can't <laughs> you'll just yeah. go and say like, there's no there's no way to make that make literal sense uh and then at later in the book a second film crew starts filming the contemporaneously film yeah the french film crew starts filming a different movie at the same time and like the french film crew is like the evil secret film crew and the american film crew is like who were those guys and like victor can't tell and the, and this is all like none of this is explained victor is never like N never like okay audience let like let me tell you who these guys are or why this is happening it's just like yep and then and then the film crew's there sure yeah well and then yeah there's like i feel like it's like slowly slipped in like fairly early on this weird film crew 
because he's like he'll start talking about like oh you know the camera wipes left or I, something like that yeah. you know and it's like oh is he just like is that just how he's like thinking about things or whatever right and then it's like yeah. then it becomes more and more like overtly a film crew involved <laughs> you know like when damien beats him up he's all like wait that wasn't in the script or whatever you know right. like what's he talking yeah. about <laughs> <laughs> right yeah um so what do what do you make of that? What do you make of the film crews? Well, you know, I think to me, a lot of it has to do with like, um, I feel like a lot of it has to do with the idea of free will, you know, like mm. whether a person's like, you know, like he keeps talking about the script or whatever. It, it's like, are you a, an agent, a free agent doing like things by choice, um, making your own choices, doing things, or are you just sort of following this script? Right. You know, that's like, interesting. Right. It's it's yeah. like like with the with the murder of Sam Ho. You know, it, like mm -hmm. I was so I had to read that scene twice because he's talking about there's this dummy there. Mm -hmm. that's like got gashes in it and like electrodes attached to it. And it keeps like, there's violet colored fluid leaking out of its anus and it's like spasming and everything. And he's like talking about they, it, you know, it's all like, but it's like, he's like, and then Sam Ho was dead. And it's like, wait, what are we talking about a dummy? Or are we talking about a, a person being murdered? And it seems like right. he's like witnessing like some kind of special effects brutal murder but then it's like i was like is this just him trying to put some kind of is a coping mechanism mechanism to put like some distance between what he's witnessing um the reality of what he's witnessing and the terror of it by like referring to it as a dummy and everything but then uh but then he's like convinced that there was a real murder and it's like, and then people are like, no, we saw there, here's a, here's a picture of Sam Ho on the beach, but then there's all the doubling going on. Yeah. You know, like, and then they say like, they say like, oh, the actor who played Sam Ho is missing. Right. <laughs> At some point they start saying like, what happened to the actor who was playing Sam Ho? So it's like, right. it's, yeah. There's like so many realities happening. Right. And and Victor just immediately is like, yeah, there's an actor playing Sam Ho. Like Sam Ho is just a character. Right. And there's no there's no like guide. There's nobody holding our hand as an audience through this or, or breaking down like what's what's real and what's not and who's a character and who's an actor. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really and it's strange because like Victor is Victor in this movie, right? But it but like by this logic, he should be he he should be the actor playing Victor. Yeah. And I guess it's I guess he's playing Victor Ward, but he is Victor Johnson. Right. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it's very yeah, it's very um confounding. <laughs> but then and then um like the uh there's these all these surreal elements that like become more and more pronounced as you get later into the book where like 
there's always like they're always going to these like parties and things and for some reason there's like ice on the floor a lot of ice on the floor and everything smells like shit and there's flies around oh yeah the smell of shit becomes like more and more pervasive throughout the book throughout the book and it's like yeah you know there's a sense that like they're kind of you know in a way like they're sort of in he's sort of in hell you know <laughs> like he's not and there's like you know with i think it's with when he goes and jamie he goes to the, back to the house to find he, after he meets with chloe he goes back to the house uh to find bobby and like he finds that everybody's basically been like is sort of in the process of being murdered like bobby <laughs> set up all these things where everybody's dying in there um, yeah like a bunch of fucking like saw traps. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, he's talking to Jamie, and then like something happens. Some black shadow goes over and, and says, uh, "She says like I'm already dead or something like that." And then this black shadow goes over and says, "You all are." Oh wow! Like I that. feel like I missed that. I don't remember that. Um, that's so that's so creepy. <laughs> yeah. Um, we haven't really addressed yet kind of one of the main gimmicks of this book is like the uh, the compulsive listing of celebrity names. <laughs> like there, there's paragraph yeah. after paragraph. Oh, it's just like I see David Duchovny and then I see Jennifer Aniston and then I see – and it's just like 200 celebrity names back to back. Right. Like almost like an attempt to list every single yeah. celebrity of the um, 1990s. <laughs> yeah. And it <laughs> reminds me a lot of, I know you haven't read American Psycho, but there's an obsessive cataloging of like clothing items and like furniture items in American Psycho. And some of that makes it into the movie. So you're probably a little familiar. Like mm -hmm. whenever he talks about any character, he'll say like he's wearing like French cuffs. Um, he's like it's a Brooks Brothers, uh, Brooks Brothers shirt and a Givenchy uh, vest and shoes from La Bouton. And it's like a really in-depth, exhaustive and exhausting <laughs> description. Um, and I feel like the listing of celebrity names kind of fills the same function in this book of kind of like both reflecting like a compulsion of the narrators and also kind of just like testing us as an audience like being like, can you make it all the way yeah. through all this bullshit that doesn't have anything to do with the plot? I dare you. I dare you to read all of it. Right. To and I think it's kind of to create the same feeling of like <laughs> monotony and restlessness that probably exists in well, the narrator. Right. It's kind of, it's almost hypnotic. Just this yeah. compulsive yeah. listing when, of celebrity names over and over showing, they keep showing up at the parties. It is parties kind of hypnotic. And, like, and this is something I, uh, in, um, in less than zero, uh, uh, I mentioned that I feel like the kind of like, the doldrums, the the boring parts of Clay's life, like I could cut that out. But I, I mentioned that I feel like Brett got better at being boring in a like enthralling way <laughs> as he went on in his career. And I feel like this book is a good yeah. example of that. Like there is a lot of like, yeah, of, of just like hypnotic, monotonous list making. <laughs> but, but it's not like a bad reading experience, yeah. but it is weird. <laughs> And it's it, and it, but it has like a forward yeah. momentum, nonetheless. 
<laughs> it's like an oscillating uh, <laughs> forward momentum, you know, like rocking back and forth, but <laughs> but like moving across yeah. the room. And I feel like it would it. also <laughs> probably it would probably be even even like more hypnotic if I was reading this at the time that it came out because there were a lot of celebrity names that just meant nothing to me. But I was like, I bet that person was like big at the time and fizzle uh -huh. out. And I don't know. I don't know who they are. But like if I was reading it today, I'd be like, oh, yeah, that guy's on that sitcom. That guy's in that band. Da, 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 da. Um, but yeah, so I feel like that's maybe uh, that's maybe a, like kind of an element that's lost to time. <laughs> you probably right more celebrity names than I did if I had to guess. I don't know. But there was I like I feel like he only like pretty much only made up characters when he had to do things with them that were like too outrageous, shocking to yeah, that's fair. do with a real person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everybody else yeah, is real. Pretty much. But oh I found that passage I was referring to. So uh this is when he Jamie's dying. He's gone back to the the house where they were living and Jamie's dying. He says, Jamie, how's Lauren Hind involved in all this? I'm asking. Um, I'm asking, look at me. How's Lauren Hind involved? She gave me the hat. I've seen pictures of her with Bobby. Jamie starts laughing, delirious. You remember Lauren Hind from Camden, right? I say, she knows Bobby. She gave me the hat. I pulled Jamie's, Jamie closer to my face. They set me up with her, didn't they? That wasn't Lauren Hind. Victor, Jamie sighs. It was Lauren Hind, I say. It was Jamie. You didn't pay attention, she sighs again. That girl was not Lauren. Jamie, I know that girl, I say. She's Chloe's best friend. What are you saying? That was someone else. Jamie keeps sighing. No, no, no. I'm shaking my head adamantly. Lauren Hind died in December 1985 in a car accident outside Camden, New Hampshire. She leans into me, lowering her voice, almost as if she's afraid someone is listening. And I'm thinking she's just a shell and something huge and shapeless is flying over us in the darkness, hang, hanging above the courtyard. And a voice says, you all are. Mm, wow. And is that, does that seem like the way that it's formatted? Does that seem like a that's included in the I'm thinking? Like, does it seem, does it seem well, saying that he's imagining this? We'll see the, yeah. The interesting thing is at the end of that paragraph, it says something huge and shapeless is flying over us in the darkness, hanging above the courtyard. And a voice says, comma, no quotation marks, capital Y, you all are. Hmm. So it capitalizes it as though, <laughs> as though it were a quoted statement, uh, but it's not, it's not in quotation marks yeah huh yeah that's strange um so let's kind of let's back up a little bit um yeah so i want to go back to the various women in victor's life so yes he kind of he kind of bounces from <laughs> lover to lover right he's got he's juggling chloe and allison at the same time and then he is called away to go overseas um, oh, don't forget Lauren Hind. Yes. Oh, Lauren Hind. Yes. He runs into Lauren, Lauren Hind Lauren. and he doesn't recognize her. She, she is, she's like, we had a relationship. We went to college together, but he doesn't remember her, which seems realistic based on his relationship to Lauren in Rules of Reaction. Well, and then that part that I just read is interesting 
makes that interesting because she's all like, that wasn't Lauren Hine. Yeah. He didn't recognize her. Yeah. And then in Jamie's time, that wasn't Lauren Hine. <laughs> yeah. And he's, even though he didn't recognize her, he's like, no, yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. I know her. And like, he's right, just, exactly. he's completely just retconning. He knows her because like she said, she, that's who she is. And like, Chloe says that's who she is. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. It's a strong, strong piece of evidence for me in the, Victor is genuinely dumb column. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so he's juggling, uh, he's juggling Allison and Chloe, and then he meets Lauren, and he's juggling her as well, right? And then he gets called abroad because this, this is kind of like this feels like a classic, um, a classic like thriller setup. And I guess it's literally this is literally the plot of um, the talented Mr. Ripley is like the uh an agent working for the parents of this like, right that's wealthy, right wealthy kid who went gallivanting abroad approach approach this guy and are like you went to college with with her in talented mr ripley it's a him and are like we want you to bring him him her in this book bring her back home and we'll pay you this amount of money and then he goes abroad but then like things get off the rails and he never comes home um, I didn't think about that before, but that is literally just the plot of the talented Mr. Ripley. Yeah. Um, uh, so, so he's got it while he, he's, for some reason he has to take a, a ship to get abroad. Like they don't really address why it can't be a plane. Do they? Actually they do. Oh, eventually. Did they? I missed it. Okay. What was it? Sort of. Oh, eventually, well, like way after the fact, it's because he's smuggling. Right, way after the fact. <laughs> yeah, but the plastic explosive. Right, but leading up to it, he's never like, "Why can't I take a plane?" Because he's dumb. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, no, well, he does. he is actually. He's like, oh, he's like, why the fuck did you, why why the fuck are you putting me on a ship? Why aren't I on a Concorde? Right, right, <laughs> right. That's right. And then they just kind of explain it away, and he's like, "Oh, whatever." Yeah, he has no agent. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so then while he's on the ship, he meets a girl. Was her name Marina? Marina. Marina. And Marina, it starts to seem, is involved in some kind of some kind of nefarious, mysterious spy type activities. Uh and uh so then he's he's just suddenly like Yep, now I'm team Marina. Like he's just accumulating women left and right. Right. Um and Marina uh mentions that she's going to France and he's he decides that he's going to go to France with he's her. Like, Please let me follow you there. Yeah. Cuz he's just a lost little puppy dog and he just needs to, <laughs> yeah. He just needs a, a woman holding onto his leash. Um and then uh he has a strange encounter with her on the ship. Uh, right <laughs> where she he was supposed to like he was supposed to meet her somewhere but she didn't show up but then she shows up late and kind and of sits around getting super drunk he gets very first. drunk yes and then do you remember how he describes who he believes to be her when he sees them do you remember yeah yeah do you want to yeah like share it well, she was he's like right you were in a wig yeah. They're like that's Where what that occurs to him. And she seems taller than I remember. Right. And she's like, and he can never big. see her. He can never get a look at her face. And her and, and she, she's got a tattoo that she didn't she didn't he didn't notice before. 
Yeah, she's got a tattoo he didn't notice before. And, she's very muscular. Yeah, and her feet are enormous, and she's wearing like sneakers. <laughs> like, right. sne like it's very clear to the reader without the without Victor ever seeming to register it that this is a man. It, like a large man in a hoodie and jeans and sneakers and just like a wig. <laughs> but Victor's like, Marina looks a little bit different than I remember. It's so weird. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then, so much is, um, much is made of um, this hat that he was told to bring abroad with him. Um, that was a hat that he, took from he took it from uh lauren hind lauren hind right under the guise she handed it to like, him saying like as like cover for why he was in her apartment right and damien right because damien is juggling two of the same women that victor is also juggling <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um uh so um, yeah, so he he just kind of like incidentally ends up with this hat, but then Palacon is like, you need to bring you need to bring the hat with you overseas. It's important. So he has the hat yeah. on the ship, and there's kind of there's kind of like intrigue around this hat. Um, and then so it it seems pretty clear uh, to the reader, although not to Victor, that like this is a man in a wig who's like sneaking into Victor's room to steal the hat. Um, yeah, for whatever spy purposes, because it's full of phlebotinum. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but this man, this man in a wig, who we will learn eventually, we will learn is Bobby. Um, based on the tattoo on his shoulder, we know that that was Bobby. Um, he gives Victor a blowjob. Yeah, completely gratuitous, because Victor is so soused and like just such a helpless baby in general that he could have just walked yeah. taken it and left but like yeah. he introduces a sexual component that seems completely unnecessary <laughs> yeah <laughs> and that seems like it's maybe like that's just for Bobby like that wasn't part yeah. of the assignment that was just like <laughs> that was just a personal choice on Bobby's part I don't know yeah. like do you think there's any other reason for that I yeah, that's interesting. I'm not. I don't know. Yeah. Well, like there's there's a whole there's just a whole lot of sex in there. There's that like I had a hard time getting through that that uh, sex scene with Bobby and Jamie and him. Um. Yeah. It's like kind of gross, <laughs> right? It's a, yeah. It's very hard to read for it's me. It's extremely graphic. That's something about that's something about Brett's sex scenes is like. He really goes into detail about like the physical reality right. of sex. Right. Exactly. <laughs> it is like too it's, it's like too play by very, play. Yeah, almost critical. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he'll throw in words like rectum. <laughs> it's just like this and, yeah. in a sex scene. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's it's kind of gross. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um yeah, that the sex scene with with Jamie and Bobby 
and well that it goes on so long yeah, too. it's like 10 pages like <laughs> most of his chapters are, are very short and that one just it just goes on forever it's yeah. like it feels like it's never gonna end <laughs> yeah brett does the same thing in american psycho like like just pages and pages and pages and pages of of like weirdly anatomical <laughs> sex scenes uh after um victor has this uh encounter with the person he thinks is marina who we know is actually bobby he he finds like kind of evidence of a murder in marina's room and and that's how he realizes yeah. the person wasn't really marina right like he finds teeth embedded in the wall <laughs> which is very disturbing yeah um and then once he gets to once he arrives in Europe, he kind of just falls into falls into this group uh, that that uh, God, there's so many women. Jamie, Jamie, the woman that he's there to bring home, has gotten gotten involved with, and the the group is Jamie and um, another girl. Fuck, what's her name? Tammy. Jamie. Uh, they're just a bunch of models. Jamie, Tammy. Bruce Bentley, and then the their clear ringleader, this extremely like mysterious, reclusive, incredibly handsome model, uh, Bobby, uh, Bobby Hughes, and Bobby Hughes is like the driving malevolent force of this book, and it's it was so strange to me on this reread realizing like how late he joins the game like i guess he joins the game yeah. he joins the game a little bit earlier when you realize that the the person who blows victor on the ship is bobby in disguise but he doesn't enter he's not mentioned as bobby hughes he doesn't enter the game until like i don't know like three quarters of the way through the book but he's like the, yeah he's really like the main villain of the book uh and he is a he is a beautiful intelligent um model terrorist <laughs> um and he is a terrorist but he doesn't really seem to have much of an ideology that i could suss out right did you feel like he had i feel like he's more of a statist who like terrorism is just kind of like a front for yeah like just horrible sadism yeah i think that that is I think that that is fair. He he sort of feels to me like um, like a sort of revisiting of a Patrick Bateman type archetype, um, mm -hmm. um, in that he just kind of wants to inflict pain and cause suffering um, and like dismantle humanity. Um, but he's different from Patrick Bateman in that he's like he's kind of like more effective at keeping up like the cold exterior or like keeping up a composed exterior. Like he's, he's like better at it than Patrick Bateman is ultimately. Um, it's interesting. Like Victor is just absolutely humbled and awestruck when he sees Bobby Hughes, you know, he's all like, I'm not used to being in a room with a man more handsome than me. Yeah. <laughs> and, <like this>. yeah. <laughs> and he's just like, and he like kind of geeks out. Yeah. On him a little bit. And he's all like, Bobby, uh, maybe this sounds corny or whatever, but like, you really meant a lot to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Bobby, 
Bobby Hughes is clearly a figure that, like, there's not an easy real-world analog for He's, like, alpha model. Yeah, he's an alpha model, totally. Um, and he is, like, he's clearly very intelligent. Like, he's very eloquent and composed. And he he sort of, like chose to step away from the modeling limelight and and i think he mm -hmm. quoted in this sort of like expository paragraph where victor is like here's who bobby hughes is um it's like right his last known interview he ended it by saying like i know i know where i need to go and what i need to do now <laughs> and then he like right. disappeared <laughs> and here he is well, long lost bobby hughes right he'd been at yale right and had yeah. been like expelled for like Unruly behavior, I think. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was interesting because, like, they mentioned the Mr. Leisure, like, briefly, who seemed to have been, like, very influential on Bobby and the course he chose. And then Mr. Leisure, he's mentioned it towards the end, too. They're, like, talking about, like, going to a party at Mr. Leisure's or something like that. But, like, he seems to be, like, something... Like it's it's not clear, but Bobby seems to be working for somebody, sort of, and like Jamie is sort of a double agent, yeah, working for him, but also like working maybe for the Japanese or something against him. <laughs> Bobby seems to be working for like an evil force meant to just like completely undermine everything. Right, Bobby works for the Joker. And <laughs> right and and Jamie seems to be working for something that wishes to maintain law and order like mm -hmm. to preserve this surface structure that people live in <laughs> and Bobby just and Bobby's like just working to like absolutely like just destroy it so so Victor's staying with these models um led by Bobby and at first, um, it seems at first it seems cool, <laughs> um, and and I think the 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 first point where that situation takes like a sinister turn is this is Sam Ho, right? Like, there's not really a strong inclination that there's something dark going on before that, is there? Well, it's uh, I mean, like when he finds Jamie. She's just like wrapping up filming. There's been there's like explosion and a limbs all over the place. Yeah, and that's that's interesting because that is I felt I felt like that was a thing that didn't was another situation that wasn't quite isn't quite meant to make sense on a literal plane, right? Because it seemed like sort of to me it seemed like that explosion really happened. But right. then, but but then like also it was a film that Jamie was in. But then, like, Victor is so checked out when that's happening that, like, I feel like he could see a, a terrorist attack and Jamie could say, oh, that's a film we're doing. And, like, Hello. he would, like, not register. <laughs> that's a good point. That probably was what it was. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. And, like, Victor's a very, like, he's kind of your classic uh, unreliable narrator, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i think he's maybe brett's least reliable narrator <laughs> of them all <laughs> right uh, so you can't tell like what is you can't tell what's like missing because he's just missed it 
or, you know, like what are his misperceptions right. of what's going on around him and what's real. Yeah. Cause he, he both, uh, he both like is kind of out of the loop and seems to genuinely like inhabit a reality that doesn't quite match our own and where things that wouldn't happen here happen. And toward the end, he's just eating Xanax constantly. Like he's just constantly, it's just like, he's just constantly eating more. I mean, like he's taking so much Xanax. It's like, uh -huh. what would that do to a person? Like, I mean, just like, he's obviously just like, just gorging himself on Xanax. It's just uh -huh. constant. Just chewing up another one and another one and another one. Yeah. Uh, and you're like, yeah, you know, how, uh, how is that affecting his perception of reality? Right. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. There's a lot, there's a lot of, of, moving pieces in terms of like what is happening here. Yeah. The first point where we really know that like these people are bad and are up to no good is when um, Bobby sends Victor to pick somebody up at a club. This, this model named Sam Ho, who we've already talked about a little bit. And, right. and Victor goes to this club and Sam Ho is like very kind of icy and trying to brush him off until he mentions that Bobby sent him. And then Sam Ho is like, oh my God, I get to see Bobby. <laughs> I'm so excited. And they like, they hop in a limo and they go back to to the house that all the models are living in. And then the next time we see Sam Ho, it's Victor accidentally walking in on this room where this, what he describes as a dummy has like electrodes hooked up to it. But it's clear, but it's obviously not a dummy because the dummy screams and convulses, right. and bleeds <laughs> like it's Sam Ho being tortured to death in an extremely, extremely graphic, horrible way. Right. Uh, and um, when when Victor first arrived, he had a sexual encounter with Chloe. That not Chloe, not Chloe. Um, Jamie. Jamie. He had a sexual encounter with Jamie that sort of ended in a strange way of her being like, did you come? Okay. And then like quickly walking out of the room and, um, and after Sam Ho is murdered and Victor has witnessed it and is having a breakdown and sobbing. And uh, we learn from Bobby that the reason that encounter happened was that Jamie was collecting his semen so that they could frame him for raping and murdering Sam Ho so that he can't go to the authorities. Right. Well, and Sam Ho had like, and, and like uh, Bobby sent Victor to go get Sam Ho. And then basically it seemed like that uh, Victor gave Sam Ho this note. And then Sam Ho said, all right, I'm going to tell my um, bodyguards that I'm taking you home. And, right. Yeah. And like that was, and it seemed like that was probably instructions for Bo Bobby giving Sam Ho instructions about how to handle the whole thing. Yeah. Um, and like, and then they were like doctoring all these photographs and stuff. And it was like, I mean, basically they had framed uh, Victor so thoroughly that you almost, it was almost like, he might as well have just raped and murdered him. Like that was like, it was like, there was, it was like, it was so, it was such a thorough framing that like, it felt impossible to not be him having done that, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> and so then Victor kind of goes on to participate in terrorism and to like assist right. in bombing trains and like, and 
placing bombs in public and everything. And it does sort like he is he is kind of like <laughs> off the hook, right? <laughs> sort of like he's it definitely yeah. like he does like his his only choice is like going to jail for li- go pr- like prison for life. And right, or possibly he, execution, depending right. on what the laws are. <laughs> yeah, and you can definitely make the you know make the argument that like he should have <laughs> he should have sacrificed himself to save hundreds of people or whatever. But it is also like you know he's obviously acting under duress. <laughs> right, um, but then he's very like um, incautious in a lot of ways about dealing with Bobby. Like Bobby's all like you know, that's the only time you're going to be messing with Jamie. And then he's just constantly like, okay, Jamie, you want to be with me, right? We're going to get out of here. Right. You know, like just totally being like very, like not really acting like somebody who's like wife is as much as much at stake. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Yeah. It seems like he really like, (laughs) he really thinks with his dick a lot. (laughs) Yeah. And that's why he like, this is the same thing that was happening with Damien, right? Like, we don't really find out that much about Damien, but it seems like he's like tied to the mafia or something. Like Damien's a yeah. scary guy, uh, yeah. a scary, powerful guy. And Victor is <laughs> secretly fucking both of Damien's girlfriends. <laughs> and Damien's also his boss. <laughs> like Right. And then, and, and like, yeah, like it's like, and he just is so bold about it. Like he goes yeah. up to, when he goes up, like they're at the party, they're at that party. And he goes up into that like unfinished VIP room with Lauren. Mm-hmm. And he's all like, let's go, you know, and Damien's <laughs> downstairs. And then this other guy shows up and he's all like, Damien? <laughs> and it was like that other actor who he'd like given a story to the to that tabloid reporter to get himself off the hook about how he'd like beat up right. his girlfriend and everything. And the guy like punches him and beats him up. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. But uh, uh mm. and then there's like and then like the he gives that this guy, which is so interesting, he gives the this actor, I forget his name, but he gives a newspaper to Chloe mm-hmm. that has a picture of Victor like kissing Lauren that isn't real. Oh, like it wasn't something that they'd actually done, but he actually is kind of like cheating with Lauren, but the picture is not real. <laughs> and he's like trying to explain to Chloe that the picture is not real. And she's like, you're saying you're not screwing around with her. And he's like, well, 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 I'm not saying that necessarily, but like the picture is not real. And it's like, <laughs> it's like, there's all this, like the fake pictures and stuff where he's being framed, but he's being framed for stuff. He's kind of actually doing. But uh-huh, the evidence right, isn't real. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's like it's like really maddeningly baroque though. <laughs> you know, in a way, like it's like, you know, he's like, I didn't actually do that. Well, yes, I did do this and that, you know, but like Right. Yeah. And- yeah. Like, like it's unfair that I got in trouble for this because although I did do it, this is Although I did do something very, although I did do something very similar to this, I didn't do this actual thing that is photographed here. And then that's like that leads up to the very shortly after that, he gets beat up by Damien really badly, <laughs> and he's trying to explain to Damien about the. And then like I thought that was an interesting thing that like that was the first time where I, you see like the scene where Damien 
beats him up. Mm-hmm. I, I that's one of the first scenes where I feel like you see like certain depths to him that are like a little like surprising almost. Where he's all like, you know, Damien's like really it's like a totally intimidating situation. That I used to read a lot of the like detective novels, uh like Raymond mm-hmm. Chandler, Dashiell Hammett. And the way and like Victor there is acting very tough and very smart ass in the in the face yeah, of like he- overwhelming force being brought to bear against him. And like he's playing dumb and like they're kind of taking him as dumb, but he's like actually being a real smart ass and and kind of and a very tough guy in that situation. Yeah, that's true. That's true. He is. It's like there's I feel like he's got like I felt like that was like my first hint of like hidden depths to him because he's like he starts he says he started crying and everything, but he's like but like he's still just like you know not given an inch in a way in a way yeah know? that's fair you know, like i mean like i like he's like spare me when when he like tells me he's like, you know. yeah <laughs> and that's like that's like why it didn't really register with me that he's being kind of a tough guy because he's like being tough but in this like you know, like '90s kind of like Valley Girl right. parlance, like oh, oh yeah, tell me more, oh wise one. Like he's right. being, he's being like, <laughs> he sounds like a character in Clueless or right. something. But like, yeah, the un- the emotion underlying that, sort of like the grit underlying that, like he is being really tough because well, he's surrounded by goons. And the way he just goes around like screwing these women. Like yeah, with, with like dangerous men around, like around and stuff yeah. like that. He's just like he's kind of he's a little bit like not fearless, but like kind of fearless. Reckless. <laughs> he's reckless. He's reckless, but he's also but he's also like got some real for I guess for lack of a better word, balls. You know, like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Totally. That's fair. Yeah, that's especially true like as his as his affair with with Jamie goes on and as he's increasingly at the mercy of Bobby and he's like blackmailed into into aiding in terrorist acts, he's still he's still like I'm I got to fuck Jamie every chance I yeah. get. <laughs> yeah, which is like you know, is he like just incredibly dumb or is he like <laughs> incredibly bold <laughs> like what what is that right. what's driving that behavior <laughs> yeah well and it's like that's like almost a cliche line in a movie it's like you're either very brave or very stupid you know like <laughs> right yeah totally <laughs> yeah but it's like if it was if it was bravery like he probably wouldn't be blowing up subways right like <laughs> like he would be bold enough to fight back against having to like murder a hundred people <laughs> if it was just like grit and bravery <laughs> so right. there's like something else going on he's like a compul he's like a sex addict he just like compulsively cannot stop himself although he is he does like uh go out of his way to like try to hook up with palacon to try to do something about bobby you know he's like i'm gonna the next day he's all like fuck you guys i'm gonna go see chloe you know like she's you know whatever but he's actually heading to the american embassy to try to (laughs) report them right right you know i mean he's like Mm -hmm. he's got he's like fighting harder than than uh he might expect somebody who appears to have the character he has. yeah that's fair but then when he goes to the embassy they're all acting weird and uh and then 
palatons there. Most of the chapters in this book count down. Yeah. And then the oh, yeah. there's one chapter that goes forward. That's the last chapter. Right. Mm. Uh, and I'm not. And I have a th I have a theory about what why that is. Do you have a theory? Not really. Okay. Well, my theory is that um, if you're counting down, you already know how many there are. So it's like things are predetermined. Mm -hmm. um, so it's kind of it's kind of saying like everything's kind of running on a predetermined track, and like particularly like Victor is like not uh, acting with agency. And like thing, like things are going according to the script, so we uh, can count down. Yeah. And then maybe the one that's counting forward, it's more of like Victor is kind of like determining his own path, so it can't count backwards because who knows how many, who knows how many chapters there will be because he's making his own choices. Ah, I think that's. A, I actually think that's a very good theory. Thank you. <laughs> he does. There are parts where he is kind of like seems outside of himself or like he's he he seems like he's like raising to a higher plane of consciousness or something and like looking down right. on reality like the the part where he's talking about like um what does he say like it means that like order is a lie or a reality is illusory i can't remember exactly what it is but right yeah what what this implies implies simply is that truth equals chaos and that this is a regression. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I guess I guess I sort of like locked into this read of him as like a dumb baby and sort of was like the parts the parts that don't seem like something he would say are actually like not him. <laughs> like there's like, so, kind of some other like secondary narrative force <laughs> coming into play here. Um <laughs> Because there are, like, obviously this part is still in first person, but there are a couple parts in this book that feel like they're being narrated by not Victor. Here, the first, the first kind of hint that sometimes, sometimes we're reading a first person narration, but we're maybe not actually getting Victor's perspective is, um, is this line. So he says, um, a dog races by going haywire. I call out to it. It stops, looks at me, runs on. Disarm by a smashing pumpkin starts playing on the soundtrack and the music overlaps a shot of the club I was going to open in Tribeca. And I walk into that frame, not noticing the black limousine parked across the street, four buildings down that the cameraman pans to. So he is narrating something that he's saying he didn't notice. So that that kind right. of sets me up for this like understanding that like yes, Victor's our narrator, but also he's kind of like channeling a higher force that understands things he doesn't understand. Right. Um but that's kind of Victor seeming to channel something else, but then the this chapter that seems like it just isn't Victor? It's it's like the first introduction to to the ship. So, uh, like uh, the first the first chapter where we're on the ship is like we've kind of had this like uh, dumb Victor being an inarticulate dumb dumb narration up to now, and then um, part two, chapter sixteen, is like 
everything surrounding the ship is gray or dark blue and nothing is particularly hip. And once or maybe twice a day, this thin strip of white appears at the horizon line. But it's so far in the distance, you can't be sure whether it's land or more sky. It's impossible to believe that any kind of life sustains itself beneath this flat, slate-gray sky or in an ocean so calm and vast that anything breathing could exist in such limbo, and any movement that occurs below the surface is so faint it's like some kind of small accident, a tiny, indifferent moment, a minor incident that shouldn't have happened. And leading up to this, everything has been like, I'm just, I'm just opening my club, man. Like whatever, dude, spare me, bro. And yeah. there's this harsh, severe turn into this like lyrical, uh, philosophical uh, narr narration that never uses first person. There's no I in this chapter. Is it just, it's just a tiny chapter. It's like one paragraph. Um, and so to me, it feels like this, like there are at least two narrators in this book. There's a, there's a victor and there's a, some kind of not victor force. So then in moments where it appears that later on in the book, when it appears that Victor is saying something deep, I sort of felt like primed to read that as like, that's not Victor. That's the extra Victor force. Yeah. Well, that, I think he definitely doesn't have a fixed identity, mm. you mm -hmm. know? And like the, the whole thing where it, with the, that first scene where you're reading with the dog and then it pans over and there's this, uh, limousine he hadn't noticed mm -hmm. i felt that all like went along with him like being an actor following a script mm, okay you so know? he's saying so, his character so didn't a, notice actor right exactly his character didn't notice he knows all this is the actor playing the character <laughs> <laughs> but his character didn't notice yeah but, fair enough <laughs> yeah but um yeah you know and i i i, I don't think at all I don't think everything in the book, like, I don't think it's like, oh, okay, he's this, you know, that's the, this Victor doing this and that Victor doing that. Like, there's a lot of times where it's all like the two Victors are indistinguishable. Like they are uh -huh. both the same person. But like, I feel, I do feel like that whole like book five where he's going to NYU and all that mm -hmm. stuff. I feel like that is like the double, the acceptable Victor mm -hmm. double. He's going by Victor Johnson again. He's kind mm -hmm. of very much like Victor Ward was, but a little more assertive, a little more mm -hmm. in control. He's suddenly not like nearly as dumb as he used to be, although he uh -huh. still has never heard of PETA. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> um, that's, yeah, that's interesting. Um, it's interesting to read it as like this is like a different Victor, like a literally a different person. Like it's the double because in the book before it's like victor victor thought he was out of the woods like he he killed bobby he got away from the terrorist ring um but then he gets abducted and he has to like, he has to hang out in this hotel room like 24 hours a day with a right. babysitter and nobody will believe him because um, everybody sees victor right you know I, like i just had lunch with victor you're lying uh, i'm right yeah. here with you right now yeah. And so we read this, like, this thing about him being like 
stuck in a hotel room. Like they're basically doing an old boy <laughs> <Right>. on him. <laughs> he has to live in this hotel room with this like beefy bodyguard type dude. He gets um, and, and who gets murdered. Um, but we don't really get like closure on that. Like I can't exactly remember how the episode ends, but like we don't really know what's become of Victor. <laughs> um, and then it just kind of like cuts and jumps to suddenly he's very together and he's in law school and he's much smarter, um, which it just seems like it's, it seems like it's missing a lot of like connective tissue of like, how did he get from point A to point B? But it actually kind of makes more sense to be like, no, we're cutting away from Victor A, the fuck up reject. And we're cutting to Victor B, the double who's like right. the good son. Like that, the, that makes more sense, I think, but I didn't read it that way, but I think you're right that this is like, we're literally like jumping into, <laughs> into replacement right. Victor's narrative. And I guess, I guess Victor A is, I don't know, trapped, trapped in right. Europe forever. Right. Do you remember how that's, how that portion ends? Cause I know he finds his, he finds his babysitter murdered. Well and then, like, what does he do? He, like, runs away, and then, like, well, we don't find out to, what happens to him. He goes to a uh, bar, and he's looking at a mural. That's how it, it ends. That's how the, that's how the, how right. the whole book ends, but right? That's basically... And the, the mountain is the future. <laughs> it's, like, a very, a very weird analogy. Yeah, because it's, like, um, I, yeah, like, so he goes in, he finds them um, naked and dead, the guy who his guard. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, and he had he had gone out to take a walk because his his babysitter was right. hooking up with a girl, and then when he comes back, he's and naked and he's no, been murdered. And, and the girl, so presumably, the hot girl killed and him. Then says, and then the next chapter is just one sentence in a nearby room in the Principe de Savoy. A, a prop master is loading a nine millimeter mini Uzi. And, oh, yeah. and then he basically right. is having, and then he basically has a flashback about Chloe Burns. And then he's in the bar at the Principe de Savoia, where this prop master was loading a nine millimeter mini Uzi. And he's drinking a glass of water mm -hmm. at the empty hotel bar and looking at this mural. And then it's, uh, he like goes into the mural and he's flying up the mountainside. And that's basically the end of it. So like, it, maybe he's been killed by the prop master with the 13 millimeter oh yeah i didn't read it that way but that does make sense if you're reading somebody loading a gun and then you're reading somebody having a strange not quite of yeah. this world right. experience real, it says, you know like this i this is definitely brett's most abstract book yeah by like a long shot uh which i'm not you know i'm not opposed to i like it i think it I think it works. I feel like with with works, with books and with movies and, and whatever else that kind of aim to confound, um, it's sort of hard. It's sort of hard to articulate whether they're confusing in a good way or confusing right. in a bad way. But you sort of sense you sort of sense on like a subconscious level whether like the underlying logic right. is there. And I feel like I read I feel like I read this book and I can't totally connect all the pieces, but I feel like I feel like they're there. I feel like 
I feel like I sense that it does connect on some level, even though I can't say like what it means yeah. or what it is. Yes. And I feel like I, you know, I feel like uh, with the movies and books and art and poetry that I like best on some level, they're an argument. There's like mm -hmm. a thesis and like, they can be like very complex and laid out in a very complex way. And then there's like supporting arguments made throughout for that thesis uh, in support of that thesis and supporting evidence presented. And like, I, f I, I feel like to me, the things that the stuff I like best is like structured that way. And it's like the story part of it, the part of it that like is a narration of events is not really the important part. It's the argument that the work is making that's important. And does it like, is it making a consistent and logical argument? Uh, and if it's doing that, then it, feels like good and complete and if it's not doing that if it's just all like you know throwing in random shit for the sake of throwing in random shit you do you feel the false notes that aren't like where there's a lack of intention like i think a lot of work they don't know they're just like okay well you know like out this is all right so there's going to be this and then this is going to happen and that and it's like they're thinking of a story that they think is interesting but they don't they're not arguing anything and it's and it like it, it lacks that feeling of depth because there's no like real argument. Um, whereas like you know I don't like books that are like all preachy and didactic or whatever. But like <laughs> you, yeah, like a real artist is like giving you all these like beautiful little images and things, and they're like really telling a story. But then there's like at the same time it's it's an argument, and you don't even like feel the argument or see the seams or whatever <laughs> of it you know <laughs> like it's not like but and, and then you have to like think really hard to like figure out what it is they're arguing you know and like i feel like there's a lot of like clues you know about what he's arguing in this you know like it, the title glamorama it's like glamour you know is like something with like this appearance of being like important and pleasing and fascinating and everything else are like you know that i think uh you know like the vampire glamour or whatever where you like they put a they uh -huh. like it's an enchantment or something glamorama it's all like you know like panorama where it's like you're surrounded mm -hmm. by mm -hmm. so it's like you're surrounded by like things that are very like on the surface and pleasing to the eye but that's like but it's concealing something. Um, yeah. And then like, I like this Baxter Priestley guy who's kind of a thorn in his side. It was interesting. Like I was like, I just Googled Baxter Priestley to try to get some idea about what that might be referring to. And like a couple of lines down on the Google search, there's references to these like Unitarian ministers, uh, Priestley and Baxter. There's like, there's essays on them at the back of this <laughs> book of the history of Unitarian Church and stuff like that. And they've got like these like metaphysical arguments about like, like uh, the need for repentance. Uh, and like, you know, like uh, Priestley argues there's like the, uh, the spiritual world must form, follow the form of the natural world. And vice versa, you know, so like mm. you can see how it's applicable on its themes, you know, but it's like, 
Yeah. And then like for some reason. That's especially interesting keeping in mind the thing you said about how it seems like Victor's yes. in hell. <laughs> like I ha like I hadn't read it that way, but well, there's still a shit just cropping up all over the place. It's like it's like there's this surface of like when they're at fancy part they're at fancy parties with all these celebrities and there's flies like around the caviar and like you smell shit and like nobody else seems to be noticing, you know, like it's, there's the glamour is covering up the rottenness underneath and he's like yeah. becoming more and more right. aware of the rottenness. Yeah. And it's interesting that in that one um, segment you read, Damien, the thing that Damien says is like, oh, did you read the headline? The devil yeah. escapes hell. <laughs> like that's, that seems like a very strange kind of non sequitur. Yeah, there is like kind of a, <laughs> like, it's like, it's like hell is just like <laughs> more Hollywood, <laughs> but grosser. <laughs> right. And like, you know, like for some reason, like there, there's stuff like these white rooms and stuff like that. Um, and by all the white yeah. clothes. And everything's and cold. Things, yes, things are cold. Yeah, uh, Bobby is always like, why is it so fucking yeah. cold in here? Like Bobby in particular is always cold in the house. Yeah, and there's just like, I could tell as I was reading it, like the cold must have must be significant in some way, but I didn't know right. what to make of it. But it seems like in particular, Bobby is always cold. And it kind of would make sense if Bobby's the devil right. and he lives in hell. <laughs> if he escaped right. hell and came to earth, like, oh, he's cold all the time because he's right. used to hell. And also, if you're, and also if you're dead, it would make sense too. Like you're cold. Oh, yeah. 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 I, I feel like there's like, I, I feel like it is sort of like a, a little bit of like the book is sort of expressing frustration with the inability to like get past the surface of things. Like he keeps quoting that line from the, yeah, the U two song, mm -hmm. which is interesting because that was like that song came out in like ninety one, and that's like oh, huh. seems to be like five at least five years before this uh, story is set. But uh -huh. like Victor, when he's talking about like when he's talking about like uh, when he was going, what, how old he is, and when he was at college mm -hmm. at Camden and everything. He seems like he he actually would have to be older for all that to make sense. You know, they're talking mm. about Lauren Hine died in 1985, but but that, now but it's if it's like 96 or 97, but he seems like 29 like at that point, probably. Yeah, and he's yeah. supposed to be like 25 or something in this book. He says something like that. So it's like, yeah. where'd that last time go? Right. You know, like has he been dead a while and he didn't know it, or <laughs> like. Yeah, or that's interesting. Just a case of like Ellis starting this book like around ninety one or whatever when he was a certain because he Ellis like talks about how he always writes about his characters are always like the age when he's writing it. They spent like eight years writing this book, mm -hmm. seven or eight years. Yeah, this is his longest. This is his longest right. project. So like, yeah, so so when he started it, he would have been the right. age that Victor is. It, yeah, he's, uh, <laughs> he's actually like several years older. Yeah. Yeah, Victor's timeline it like, doesn't, doesn't add all. up, and there is kind of, and there is this like, there is this kind of like limbo slash hell like motif right. throughout the book. So it does kind of make sense that maybe, yeah, maybe he is dead the whole time or well, something. You know, like, I and I feel, but I feel like people, um, 
a lot of times when they're trying to like get to the, the understand the book, they want to understand, oh, was he dead the whole time? Or was he this or that? When really like the thing to understand is the arguments that, <laughs> that the author is sort of making with the story, you know? Yeah. And it's like, yeah, yeah cause I don't yeah. think it's really important. I don't think there is, I don't mean, you know, I mean, I could, Obviously, I could be. Yeah, I don't think it's like a literal sixth right. sense dead the and whole I could, time. I could like, be like <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there's things I may very well have missed in the book or whatever that might give more clues to what's going on in certain ways or whatever. But I don't think at the end of the end of the day, like what is actually going on is that important. I almost hate to call it an argument uh, because it makes it sound like it, it's just like simple. Um, it, it, it's just like you take your ideas and like you it's like out, a it's message all, yes exactly it's like, a like PSA. it's all messagey writing or whatever <laughs> but like i think it is like good writing i think has some sort of message or other and like oftentimes yeah like the message but it's not like you decode it and it's like oh here's the message you know it's like a message that like you couldn't really deliver in any other way, but then to like give this complex narrative, you know, and like right. and you kind of absorb it yeah. and you live with it and like it like changes your perspective. But it's not like, it's not yeah. like, oh, you know, like, you know, he could have saved us all a bunch of time by like uh, giving us this four sentence message <laughs> that you can just quote right. from the book or whatever, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. The more like we keep, the more we talk about the book in this way i keep thinking of i know i mentioned david lynch earlier but i didn't explicitly say it but i keep thinking yeah. of Mulholland drive yeah. as like a perfect example of this of like that's clearly making an argument and like sending a message and like i definitely like know in my bones like what that movie is saying but if you were like tell me i it would like it would come out so sloppy and it wouldn't sound right and it would take a long time. And like the movie Mulholland Drive is the way to convey that message because it's so like nuanced and multi-layered and like not entirely strictly right. like logical. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So yeah, yeah, I totally know. I totally know what you're saying. Yeah. It's like the, the only way to make the argument slash send the message of like Mulholland Drive is the film right. Mulholland Drive. Right. Well, I mean, just the con it, like the way that it's just like the way everybody's doubled and like, you know, there's pictures of him like killing some, like with a gleeful look on his face, like looking up at like, am I doing good? Mm -hmm. You know, like killing somebody. And he's like, I didn't do that. Those are doctor's photos, you know, but it's like, well, did you or didn't you? You know, it's like, you know, like <laughs> the way like, you can't ever like be certain who's real and who's not. And, and like the whole thing, like it, it's just, like when you live through the experience of the book of like just everything constantly like slipping, like sliding through or slipping through your fingers, you know, as far as like um, your understanding of who's who and whatever else, you know, it's like, it's a, <laughs> right it really conveys an idea of like this like um kind of terrifying inability to to like grab onto any objective reality you know that's like that's like it's a very vertiginous are you aware of the legal controversy uh, attached to this book? no i'm not okay well let me enlighten you and possibly enlighten our audience. Um, uh, 
I'm just going to read the Wikipedia entry on it um, for the sake of, of being succinct. So the Wikipedia subheading is Zoolander Controversy. Fans have noted similarities to the 2001 Ben Stiller comedy Zoolander. Ellis stated that he is aware of the similarities and went on to say that he considered and attempted to take legal action. Ellis was asked about the similarities in a 2005 BBC interview. In the response to the question, he said that he is unable to discuss the similarities due to an out-of-court mm. settlement. So, Brett... Brett attempted to sue Zoolander and the creative team behind Zoolander uh, for stealing his for stealing the plot of Glamorama. Um, have I you have. seen Zoolander? I saw Zoolander too as well. Um, Zoolander two was one of the worst oh, movies ever made. It was horrible. <laughs> it was so <laughs> really? aggressively unfunny. Oh, that's too bad. I, w I want it to be good because I know that um, Owen Wilson's character is dating Kiefer Sutherland yeah. as himself in that movie, yeah, which is so great. Terrible. So I want it to be good, but I never saw it. <laughs> okay. Um, so the there's obviously a cosmetic similarity between Zoolander yeah. and Glamorama, right? The, the, the base. <laughs> Yeah, male, and he and he is and he's recruited to, into terrorism and like a world of spies because male models are so like right. docile and used to taking orders that they're easily right. brainwashed. Um, and I feel like that is kind of not that hard a concept to come to really, if you think about it. Um, and I feel like that's also where the similarities end. Do you feel, do you feel like Brett's intellectual property was infringed on uh, with, by the production of Zoolander? Um, hmm. You know, it's been a while. As a lawyer, Honestly, in your legal it's opinion. It's been a while since I saw Zoolander. I'd have to like okay. watch it again, having read the book. And see if mm -hmm. I if it feels like there were things like very specific passages and things lifted. Um, gotcha. But like, yeah, you know, it's been a long time since I've seen it too. But I feel like I watched it enough in my childhood um, <laughs> to somewhat authoritatively say, like, I don't really think there's a strong right. connection. I mean, I don't. Uh, I don't. What my recollection of it, I don't see a very strong connection because there's a lot more. Like by the time he gets involved in his intrigue, uh, the like, the fashion part of it is like extremely incidental. Um, in Glamorama in, or in Glamorama in Zoolander, in Glam in Glamorama. So very much like doing yeah. this fashion thing, and then he's like, right, he's like doing it on the runway. Like, you know, well, there, there's the reporter following him around at the start of mm -hmm. of Glamorama, but like that, but. But right. like basically, that reporter like picks on a super outsized role in Zoolander. She's like, yeah, the, she's like right. the romantic lead and like co like co protagonist. And in Glamorama, she like leaves seventy five pages in and is never referenced again. <laughs> right, but I'd be you know, I mean, like especially now if you were trying to like sell a script for a movie script for Glamorama and then like they came and then like 
certain people came up with. He can't discuss it. So like I could see how it'd be all like, wait a second, right. we were in talks and now you've got this zoo interesting. Oh that's a good point. Because I do know that there was I do know that there was at a certain point, like maybe 10, 10, 15 years ago, there were talks of a Glamorama movie that never came to be. Um, so it that is an interesting point. Yeah, maybe, maybe somebody that like had insider information right. about it turned around it was involved that's a good point and i hadn't it thought of that sound like he just attempted to sue and it didn't work out he said there was an out-of-court settlement so obviously somebody paid him money to there's go an away. out-of-court settlement <laughs> so there's something <laughs> and right, you don't yeah. know how much it might have been a <laughs> yeah. substantial amount so who knows who knows yeah fair enough like there there could be what well, yeah right. it's, it's it would very much turn on a lot of very particular facts that we don't have in our possession <laughs> <laughs> yeah fair enough there's a lot of uh music references like in Western zero like oh yeah which is consistent across yeah. his works i would say like in, in all He's of got them the, uh champagne supernova mm-hmm. and yeah i think it's notable that like victor's music taste is like much yeah. more mainstream than like clay easton's yeah. music taste like victor is very top 40. <laughs> Elvis Costello makes this a uh, brief appearance as well. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah. Elvis Costello gets mentioned in a lot of Brett's books. <laughs> and I'm always like, I wonder, I can't tell if Elvis Costello is like extremely personally important to Brett or if it's like because Elvis Costello is kind of like central to less than zero that like after that brett is just like referencing himself by referencing elvis costello i'm not but sure this, but this is yeah like this book definitely seems like one that you could really like dig in deep on there's a lot of things to follow oh uh, you know i also this, this book also kind of reminds me of infinite jest quite a bit but the thing that like really like struck out stuck out to me is like more so is the difference which is like Ellis is like, he has a lot of like silly uh, humor in the book and Wallace does too. But Ellis's book, like Wallace kind of, he kind of like tries to get intense with certain things, but like Ellis's book like um, goes into the cracks and I, I guess I would say, uh, I might, it might be a way of describing it, like get, goes places that are just deeply disturbing in a way that Wallace, like Wallace kind of goes disturbing yeah. in some of his stories and books, but like not even like approaching the level of disturbing that, that Ellis <laughs> descends to. <laughs> I, th I feel like he del he goes into the cracks more than like any other writer I'm really familiar with. Um, maybe Chuck Palahniuk a little bit, but like he's, he's really like what, what is too far and like what is so far that like you're you right. wouldn't even allow yourself to imagine it like you wouldn't even think of it in your nightmares because it's so far outside of like what's acceptable like yeah. how far down that rabbit hole can i go <laughs> and like how how obsessively yeah. can i like detail that <laughs> um yeah he's very he's very like into the underbelly of like of like the just the worst things possible thomas pinchman sort of does it um 
I read a book called The Painted Bird by Jerzy Kaczynski that I felt like kind of went there like that a little bit too. But like, yeah, there's not many. Okay. Yeah, I haven't read oh, Naked yeah, Lunch, yeah. but kind that of that's my impression ago. of that's, Naked Lunch. Yeah. Although it's very, I feel like Naked Lunch is, well, I, I maybe I'd have to read it. It's been a long time since I read it. Um, but I feel like, um, I feel like it like descends into like just utter drug fueled, drug fueled chaos at times. But maybe I'm maybe I'm misremembering, or maybe I wasn't what maybe I wasn't ready for it or whatever. But that it, that's how it felt to me at the time. I feel like I feel like that's the impression of it. I get. I guess I'll have to read it eventually. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's interesting. Um, we talked a little bit about um, about. Victor. So I want to talk a little bit about Victor's sexuality. Um, we don't have to go too into it too far because we were already gone pretty long. <laughs> um, but I want to touch on this. Um, it seems like there's kind of a consistent thread of like Victor, Victor, like arguing that he's not attracted to men while like demonstrably being attracted to men. <laughs> Is that uh -huh. something that you really picked up on? Yeah. Yeah, and it kind of like comes to a head in his the like threesome scene with Bobby and and Jamie, yeah. um, uh, because Victor's Victor keeps being like accused of like dating Stephen Dorff. Like, there's this prevailing rumor right. that he's boyfriends with Stephen Dorff, and he's like, "Oh, I did like the hip bisexual thing in college, but like, I don't. I'm not into men. Like, I was I was bi for like five minutes, um, but then like." He, it seems pretty clear from like his his uh, sexual <laughs> interactions with Bobby that like he's at least very into Bobby. Yeah, I do feel like um, there's definitely um, well, and and Victor uh, is always talking about other men's cheekbones and jawline stuff like that in a way that's very like he's very. Um, uh into the masculine form mm -hmm. like he's very well there's the narcissism about his own form right yeah. he's like very but like he's definitely always like checking other guys out he's like checking out david uh in his hotel room you know <laughs> right like, yeah driving him saying that david notices him looking at him and and like it kind of amuses him or whatever yeah, them, but he's like definitely, uh, um, not not into guys. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so Brett has said that Glamorama is like his his. At some points, he's said that this is his best novel. I've also heard him say that about some other novels. But at least mm -hmm. at some point, he said that this was his best one. And this is the one that he put the most thought into and put the most work into. Um, and clearly, just like in 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 terms of like amount of time, that's obviously true. Because he wrote that he spent like six years writing this. Um, uh, but do you, do you feel like based on like the other exposure you've had to his work so far, does this feel like more polished than his other works to you? Well, I think that this definitely is um, a much more polished work than less than zero. Yeah. Um, 
a lot more sophisticated in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. um, less than zero um, kind of uh, had certain things about it, I think, that um, gave it more of an emotional punch than um than glamorama because there's like there's so much ironic distance and so much uh so much confusion um yeah glamorama like reality like um yeah glamorama is more of a comedy like it's not it's not a pure straight up comedy but it's I think in a lot of ways it is a comedy and less than zero. I feel like for the most part is not and has like moment moments of that kind of dark humor to it, but is mostly a drama. If we're going to like break it down into kind of like a drama comedy binary, uh, which reminds me though, that like of that, um, like that I kind of noticed re reading this and then like thinking back on less than zero, that there is kind of like it, element of this being a comedy of manners and that less yeah. than zero is kind of a comedy of manners in some ways too where there's so there's like this there's all this reference to like really current social trends and stuff like that and like all these parties where people are having these ridiculous conversations um yeah where they're like ironically revealing things um you know, like a little bit like Oscar Wilde, an Oscar Wilde play or something, you know? Yeah, um, I think that's a really apt comparison. And I think that's also like, you see that in his other works too, like American Psycho, all the stuff where they're like talking about dinner reservations or talking about like how what what it's appropriate to pair a Paisley tie with or whatever. Um, yeah. <laughs> like this is, it, yeah, it feels like kind of really, really, I think, directly and intentionally influenced by like comedies of manners like Oscar Wilde. I think yeah. that's, I think that's true. And I think that's intentional. Yeah. And like, and just in like the start of the rules, I mean, of attraction, like I'm like, I think I'm just part way through a chapter where like this guy, Paul, the character, Paul mm -hmm. is sitting with some other uh, gay students at a table and they're like making this. Oh yeah. Yeah. Of, yeah. Like, <laughs> That's, people who sense. people who are out or whatever people who are yeah, dead to right, them exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it feels very oscar wilde yeah absolutely yeah i could see i could see a a good somebody could write a good like term paper about like Brady Stanellis being the oscar wilde of the 20th century <laughs> <laughs> i think there's a strong argument to be made there yeah um so before before we wrap up and give our ratings, the last thing that I kind of wanted to to talk about a little bit is, is that Brett has said that like the the seed of the idea for this novel was uh, uh, the idea of a father wanting a different son. Um, have you did you read the oh. did no, you read I, the interview where he said this? I think it was in the Paris Review. No, I've I have I seriously did like like I I saw that thing about. Baxter and Priestley mm -hmm. that I mentioned and like I, I did not get a chance to like even like read up on them much and I didn't get any further into any I never read anything about anything he said about it or any critics have said about it or anything 
That is understandable because you are a lawyer and a father of a baby. <laughs> you got a lot going on. <laughs> um, but yeah, Brett, is, Brett said, uh, I believe it was in his interview in the Paris Review, that like the seed of the idea here was about a father being disappointed in his son and wanting a different son, which is um, an element that you, that I definitely saw in this book, but like it wouldn't have struck me as like the heart or like the center of the book if I hadn't read that interview. Hmm. Um, but I mean, that is kind of where we end up is like right. Victor is in limbo, maybe dead, like trapped in this hotel room and like new Victor, good Victor is like taking over yeah. Victor's life. So that well, is, is kind of where we end up. He, and he has that lunch with his father early on. Yeah. Where his father's just basically like, he's like, yeah, can I get some more money? And his father's like, oh, God, you're awake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. right. So Glamorama um, was the book that I was mm, maybe not the most dreading rereading, but second most dreading rereading because I really hated this book the first time I read it. I thought it was interminable, way too long, really boring, and nothing happened. Um and sort of like going on this full Brett reread has been like really weird because my opinions of the books that I've read have been like kind of radically different from from how I felt about them the first time, but not like radically different in one direction. They've just been like all over the place. So this book that I thought was so, so boring, so terrible the first time through, the, upon this reread, I... Of the ones I've reread so far, and I've reread almost all of them, this is my favorite. I think this is the most. <laughs> I think this is the most interesting. I think the fact that he put the most work into this one, as compared to all the other ones, is very clear. Um, and I think the parts that are the parts that are boring, the parts that are repetitive, are like boring and repetitive in the right way, and it's like enthralling. Um, and I think that Bobby is one of his best characters, um, and I think that Victor is also honestly a really strong character. And I think the dynamic between Victor and Bobby is like su such a good like strong uh, force and like so interesting to explore. And the surreal elements kind of like, I mean, I'm a sucker for the surreal, um, but like, I think they work really well. And I do, I love that this book feels like it contains mysteries. And like, if I reread it, I would get more out of it again. Um, so um, I'm gonna give, uh, uh, I'm gonna pull my scale. I always pull my scale from the content of the book. Um, so instead of doing five stars uh, on, a, on a scale of one to five, I'm going to give it uh, on a scale of one to five um, electrodes. I'm going to give it four electrodes. I think this is a really excellent book. Uh, and I, the, the first time I read it, I believe I gave it two stars on Goodreads. I really thought it was a waste of time. So I'm really, I'm really stunned and I'm really stunned. I'm really stunned that I disliked it so much the first time. And I honestly feel like my reading comprehension has just increased over the past like <laughs> seven years. Like, I feel like I just no, didn't happen. pay attention. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. From your early twenties okay. and into your late twenties, that'll happen. <laughs> Yeah, I guess I guess the first time I read it, I was under 25, so my brain wasn't fully developed. But now I'm post 25, and my brain is fully developed. So maybe maybe that's well, the yeah. Key. There's like just like being patient with a book, you know, like 
I read I read as a habit more now than I did mm-hmm. at the time that I read this, so that might be part of it. <laughs> I'm just better yeah. at reading. <laughs> yeah, you know. But yeah, I loved it. <laughs> I think um, I well, I gave uh, Lesson Zero four stars or four. Did I come up with something instead of stars? I think you just I gave, gave it four. It, I, I think you just gave, I it, gave four it four stars. <laughs> 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 um, and. Uh, yeah, I guess I will give Glamorama is definitely like uh, a more mature work, um, and like you, he's definitely advancing as an artist at this point when he writes this book. Uh, so I feel like I've got to give it something more. So I guess I'll give it four and a half uh, Xanaxes. <laughs> All right, very nice. <laughs> um, Great. I, I'm like, uh, you know, it's tempting. It's tempting to give it five because it feels almost perfect for what it is. You know, um, and mm-hmm. I wouldn't. I'm going to stick with four and a half. But like, five, it's tough to give a book five the first time like, you read it. Like five feels like it has to be reserved for a second read yeah. through. <laughs> yeah, there's. I mean, like, it's hard to say what books deserve five stars. You know, like I'd say yeah. Madame Bovary definitely did. Lolita. <laughs> mm, I haven't read it. Yeah, Lolita. Lolita's strong. Right. <laughs> yeah, I I feel like A Hundred Years of Solitude is my go-to. Like, that is a five-star novel, and kind of everything else is debatable. <laughs> um, Remains of the Day, I feel that way about. All right, great. Um, so uh, before we wrap up, I like to always give – uh, my audience an opportunity to balance out their literary diet. So uh, we end every episode by recommending some books that are not by Brett Easton Ellis. Uh, I always recommend a book that is by not a cis white man. Uh, my guest is welcome to recommend whatever they would like. Um, so my recommendation for this episode, I feel like kind of a good counterbalance to the extreme frivolous white privilege of Glamorama is one of my favorite books, The Color Purple by Alice Walker. Um, It's uh, this book. I was really, I'm really in awe of The Color Purple. Um, I feel like a lot of, a lot of books like The Color Purple that are sort of on those like books you must read before you die lists or like books that like your English teacher suggests you read lists. You sort of, they just feel like sanitized and like, (laughs) like I don't actually want to read that. That's just like assigned reading. Um, But this, this book really feels like, you know, alive and uh, real (laughs) and like dirty and ugly and like, exciting in a way that like kind of its reputation as like an Oprah book club book maybe doesn't uh it doesn't support as much um but it's it's it covers kind of like just so many perspectives of like oppression like it's sort of like it hits on like being queer, being poor and black, being like an abuse survivor. And it even extends all the way, even though it's like primarily set in America, it extends all the way out to like kind of looking at like people living in like 
exploited underdeveloped countries like it's got so such a like wide view of like the various kind of like systemic oppressions there are while still being like really grounded in this kind of like great character voice and like real human um real human story and like you know not kind of not kind of shying away from stuff like you know the sexuality of like an unattractive poor fat like woman of color um who's queer <laughs> um yeah so i absolutely love the color purple um it's kind of a heavy read but it's an excellent read um so read it <laughs> sean what would you I'm like gonna to recommend have to check that out because i I love the movie, uh, The Color Purple. Mm, I haven't seen uh, it. But I've never read the book, okay. so we're on opposite ends of that <laughs> deal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's a very good movie, um, in my opinion, okay. IMHO. Um, good to know. <laughs> I am going to recommend a book by James Baldwin um, called mm. Giovanni's Room. Um, it's a very interesting uh, like I talked about Brett Easton Ellis being brave with less than zero. Um, Jane Baldwin wrote this book in the 1950s and it's about a gay love affair between, uh, two white men in France. And, um, his, he'd already written, um, go tell it on the mountain at that point. And like his publishers are like, don't do this. Uh, uh, your main readership is black and they are never going to forgive you for this. And he <laughs> went ahead and wrote it. And it's like just a really like beautifully written book. Um, it's It reminded me a lot of uh, the Ernest Hemingway book, um, The Sun Also Rises, which also uh, has a lot of its action taking place in Paris. Um, and it's just uh, like um, a, a really incredible um, depiction of like people who are struggling to love and be loved and to like find a reason to like go on living in the world. And like it's um, uh, really a book that you have to read to like fully understand and appreciate um like it's it's hard it's it's one of those like the sun also rises another one where it's like you can't summarize the plot <laughs> and like, or, or it's like you can't, there's nothing right. about it that like is easy to explain why it's interesting but like there's uh -huh. something like i read when it, like the character the main character is told the first person from the point of view of a white american in paris and like mm -hmm. I went into reading the book knowing who James Baldwin was and not realizing that the character is white. And like, it just like slowly dawned on me as I was reading it, the character, main character was white. But it's like just fascinating uh, to, re mm. to, to read the book. Um, it's like an okay. extremely, uh, extremely well-written book. All right. I'll have to check it out. I've read Go Tell It on the Mountain, which I wasn't crazy about. I just found it like kind of dense and, and like not that interesting to me, but that's, you know, about like church. <laughs> so, so I think like a French gay love affair might hold my attention a little yeah. bit more. <laughs> 
um okay cool good recommendation um all right well sean thank you so much for being here do you have anything you would like to plug nope. your legal services <laughs> <Not really. laughs> google I, sean right lawyer I, I, I new york like a, a half pulled my services and then i was like do i need some kind of a bit afterward i was thinking do i need some kind of disclaimer <laughs> 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 well, we haven't released that episode yet. I can edit out your plugging your legal services if you want. <laughs> but I, I, yeah. All right. Like Sean's not a public figure, so he's got nothing to plug. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me. Um, and I like to end every episode with a vintage Brett Easton Ellis tweet. Brett is no longer a very active Twitter user, but for a time he was a Twitter addict. Uh, and one of my favorite things about his Twitter of yesteryear is that he would just shamelessly name drop uh, his interactions with celebrities. So here's a vintage Betty Stanellis name drop from December 20th, 2011. Chateau tonight. Traded laughs with Benicio, met Ryan Gosling, bumped into Colin at the valet, and felt eerily like Victor Ward in Glamorama. Follow me on Twitter. I'm at Katie L. Wright. You can follow the podcast at Brett Easton Pod. Um, and check out some of our awesome brother and sister podcasts here on the Major Casts Network. Uh, if you like book podcasts and deep dives into uh, authors, um, check out King of Me, our Stephen King podcast hosted by Tom Lockney. It's the best. I'm on the episode about Christine. Go listen to it. 